All right, folks, here it is, part two of a long two-part series today. Today, I wanted to do one on scarcity because what often drives the wheel of what we think of as like greed is actually us living out of a belief, a fundamental belief that there's not going to be enough. There are 7.3 billion people on planet Earth. 150 years ago, there were 1 billion people on planet Earth. So back during the Civil War era, each human was entitled to, as much as humans are entitled, we were entitled to seven times more of the Earth than we currently get. Seven times more fresh air. Seven times more land, seven times more wood, seven times more oil, seven times more of everything than we're currently sharing. Matter of fact, as late as 1950, there were only two billion people in the world. So just since my parents have been born, we have gone from a world that had three times as much to, to one-third as much per person. We are living in a world where increasingly it matters who has what and how much of the what they have. Um, we were at the park the other day and we saw a bunch of geese. The geese were there three years ago, last time we had gone to this park. But this time, there were a bunch of geese. So the first time, there was probably 20 or so. They looked happy. They looked healthy. We fed them just a little bit. Uh, it looked like a natural scene, but the other day, whenever we went back, there were about 200 geese around this really small lake. The difference was they put in a feeder. And so, like, for the last three years, apparently, people have been going up there all throughout the week, and they've just been tossing out food, letting their kids put quarters in the feeder, and just throwing out as much food as the geese wanted. But there were some costs to that. So the geese are like, whoo unlimited food. And it's just like any other time we, we feed unlimited food to animals. Like, you start to see a whole lot more animals, but then they start to get a lot less healthy, right? Because all of them are now depending on the one source. So none of them even really have any you know skills to get food on their own. They're just waiting for people. And you notice what it does to the whole ecosystem around there. The pond does not look healthy. Like there are so many geese, there is poop everywhere. There is like floating pellets of food that are dissolving in the water. It's disgusting. And so the geese actually have a different attitude as well. We were throwing out food and almost everybody commented, man, they're so mean to each other. Because apparently it was like a slow food week or day for them and there weren't many people around and so they were just biting and devouring one another. They were just like coming up and uh, ambushing one another, trying to get food from each other. They were mean. And we were like, oh gosh, this reminds me of Haiti. See, I went to Haiti a month ago, and same thing, only with people this time. You get off in the airport, and you, you walk outside, and you notice that something has happened in this place. Some, somewhere something went wrong. So like every American that I know that's gone down there, 
within 15 minutes of getting out of the plane, looking around and seeing the place, immediately starts to ask themselves and ask each other and discuss the question, how do we fix this? Because you get out, there is trash everywhere. It smells, it's nasty. There are people all over the place and they are not nice. They are biting and devouring one another. Now they were pretty nice to us. In Haiti, you've got a similar situation where much of, if not most of the economy down there is brought into the country, donated from other countries, uh, namely the USA. And so they see Americans as we come down there as sort of like their source. And they'll be nice to us, but they'll be biting and devouring each other down there. And you go back to study, like, where did this come from and how do we fix this? It's really, really important to ask the right questions because we don't want to fix the wrong thing. And some of us wondered, should we even fix that at all? But there are so many people in the country that just sit and they have this expression on their face as if there's no life or no hope or anything like that. You'll just drive through the country and there'll be people just sitting in the yards with nothing to do no real purpose that that it would seem just existing and then whenever you start to look around you'll notice uh, you start to ask yourself the question what would I do if I lived in Haiti if I was like a healthy 15 year old boy who's sort of coming of age what would I do to provide for my family and the ones that we interacted with well not much because there's not much in the way of options Uh, forget even you can't go get a job like if you want to create your own work who's gonna pay you to do that work and what are they gonna pay you with and do you have anything to even start it with Uh, houses down there I mean you got like eight people living in a mud hut and 30 feet away is the next mud hut and there's eight more people living in there. There's no wild animals. There's no resources for many of the people down there. There's nothing for them to even start with. If they wanted to start farming or start a business or start anything, you have to have something to start with. And so for many people, and there's just not enough. So scarcity always works this way. All right. Now, there's like a three-step process that we go through whenever resources start to get scarce, okay? So, when resources start to get scarce, the very first thing that humans or any animals in the world will do is we get creative with our resources. Now, this is where a lot of, uh, forgive me, but older white people that I grew up around, when they pass on their wisdom, this is where they stop because for them scarcity meant getting creative with your resources well we didn't have that much when i was growing up so we had to be creative with it and and haven't we all gone through that at some point in our life maybe it's not even financially but maybe you didn't have much of a resource and it caused a good thing to be birthed in you getting creative figuring out how to do something with less becoming more efficient or just figuring out a different process for something. That is all great. That's only the tip of the iceberg in the scarcity because whenever whenever it gets to be a little bit more of a dire situation and no longer are all of the creative ways that you figured out to be more efficient, like you've been trying to be creative and creative and creative, 
eventually you run out of steam, you run out of energy, and there's less and less and less for you to even work with in the first place to be creative with, and then you go to step two. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody there? Step two? Step two is you start to blame. You start to bite and devour and become accusatory. You start to compete with the people around you. And I want you to think about our culture. Do we live in a culture of blame? Do we live in a culture of competition? Do we live in a culture of biting and devouring? Are you somebody that does that? What part of your life do you not have enough of? Now, most of us would say, well, I don't have enough of anything. I need more money, I need more time, I need more energy. When we get to step two, that's whenever we start to go into a downward spiral. Because biting and devouring is not productive. It's not helping anyone out. And it only takes more of our energy and focuses us on the problem instead of living life and thriving. And so that leaves us in a predicament where someone else can further even take advantage of us and take away more of what we have, more of our time, more of our money, more of our energy. And so we start into this downward spiral. And at some point, it's really, really almost impossible to get out of. And then you hit step three, and step three is hopelessness. So you start, step one, when things start to get scarce, you start to become creative, which is a good thing. But then step two, whenever you've had to be too creative for too long, things aren't working, then you go into a, a downward spiral of accusing people, blaming, competing. And then step three, you just give up. You just say, you know what, this isn't working anymore. I can't do this anymore. And you become despondent. Okay, so there are so many different areas in which our life is affected by this. We can be dealing with a scarcity of time. We can be dealing with a scarcity of money. We can be dealing with a scarcity of energy. We can be dealing with a scarcity of emotions. We can be dealing with a scarcity of relationships. We can even be dealing with a scarcity of quiet. And they're all connected. So time. Along the way, some kind of responsibility is going to enter into your life that's going to demand more of your time. Just like things would come along with your budget that would demand more of your money. And you have to budget out your time. You get 168 hours per week. And whenever you have a child, great example. <laughs> First kid comes along. What do you do? You have to restructure your schedule. And suddenly there's not as much time as you once had, right? So uh, you're going to rearrange your sleep schedule. You're going to rearrange... Uh, your work schedule, you're going to rearrange your free time schedule. That means you're going to quit having free time. <laughs> you're going to rearrange your time because you've got to get creative with it. And then maybe uh, some promotion at work comes along or maybe something happens to your life that's going to demand more time or you have a second child or a fifth child or whatever and your time becomes more and more and more scarce. What do you do? You get really protective of it because you've been creative long enough you get really, really protective. And then the kid walks in while you're trying to do that thing that you wanted to do. And all of a sudden you find yourself snapping at your kid. Am I the only one that's done this? 
right? Because we're in like phase two, we're trying to be protective and we end up lashing out at other people. Don't you take some of my time away because I don't have enough. Now, time's connected to money, isn't it? Time's like totally connected to money because if you have more money, you can buy time. These people say, we can't buy any time. Well, yeah, you can because I can hire a maid to clean my house if I have enough money. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I freed up more time. Time can, I mean, I, if I didn't have to drive a piece of junk car out there, I wouldn't spend as much time messing with it. So like literally time and money really overlap with one another and time overlaps with everything in our life. It overlaps with our emotions, right? It overlaps with our relationships because we're going to spend time on all of these things. And so how many of us, though we may not consider ourselves scarce for money, we're scarce for time. It's come out of somewhere. Like at some point, you have to pay for the responsibilities that you have whether you took those on yourself or whether they were just laid in your lap or whatever at some point you've got to pay for those and you're going to pay for it with one of your resources what about quiet what an undervalued resource in our society like we do not understand at a societal level how much having quiet is beneficial to us and you say well um, you know I can get quiet in my house but I, I don't even know that we can like we run to spend our quiet so quickly on TV on Facebook and things like that because we feel like we're having to catch up from something that we're lacking. We spend quiet all of the time. And then, like, how many of us live in the suburbs or in the city? Like, you, you get no quiet if you walk out of your house. There's always noise going on. You get no quiet if you come into your house. And then uh, you desperately desire noise because you're just so addicted to the buzz of it but quiet refreshes the soul it's a resource for us and that's why a lot of times like um, I found myself trying to record a podcast and I've got four kids and so like I can get really protective of my quiet this works on so many different levels energy is just so underrated and under talked about as well like uh, under talked is that a word <laughs> um, our energy has to it comes from somewhere and it's going to go somewhere we need to manage our energy just like all of the other things like I can be I can have plenty of time at the end of the day I can even have money but I can be drained on energy and that's when I get to be short with people uh, being a teacher especially I know this really well um, because whenever you go to teach all day long you are constantly on top of people going you do this you do this don't do that don't do this and you're surrounded by 25 really high needs kids it's almost as if you've just attached a tube from me to them and they've just sucked my energy out right they get some sort of love from me 
and then I'm drained at the end of the day and I come home at the end of the day and I just got nothing left I don't even want to go to sleep necessarily I just want to be left alone and then that's whenever I can also turn into a grouch and so like all of these ways are ways that we can be drained and they're all connected to each other time is money is energy alright now when we look at things this way it really starts to change our perspective on what it means to not have much so I got told a whole lot growing up I, I was raised in rural areas and I knew a whole lot of really awesome old country people and they would say things like well back when I was a kid we didn't have much we just was out there on that farm and we just had to make do I just had one pair of clothes for the way and and so you hear this and those people were actually convinced that they didn't have much growing up they did have to get creative with their resources but I would argue that if you were raised up in the country 50 years ago you were so much more wealthy than you even realize no matter what your bank account was what's the value of the 10 acres that you may have owned what's the value of having a free playground for kids to run around on out around your house what is the value of the education that the kids got from all of the vicarious hands-on experiences compare that to one of my fourth grade apartment kids right here in the middle of the city they've got nowhere to go they've got nothing to do with their time and no place to do it and the saddest thing is they have no adults in their lives pouring out to them love and giving them time that's poor the kids that I work with every day are poor and they may have an iPhone and they may have a Nintendo game like you didn't have out on your farm 50 years ago or 100 years ago but guess what you had so much more in terms of wealth than they have and so whenever people move oftentimes they move into uh, an urban or a rural area a lot of times we say they have uh, you know so much more money like I used to live in a small town on the interstate and everybody kinda knew that when the city people came through from Dallas or from Austin you know they drove nice cars and they looked like they had so much yeah but they didn't have that much because when they drove home they came home to yeah maybe it was a nice house but it was on a quarter acre lot and their life is often like a prison of having to drive straight to work and straight back and not having many options as far as I mean come on they can't even go out and pee in their backyard without somebody complaining about it I mean give me a break <laughs> so we got to start realizing that resources matter and we've way overrated money and we've way underrated so many of the finer things in life and now those things are actually costing money okay so I want to move on to a society level there are people groups in our world who are also dealing with scarcity at a bigger scale there's particularly a very powerless historically powerless group 
in the United States. They were brought over by Europeans who were trying to settle this area 200 to 300 to 400 years ago. Brought over, hoarded on boats with nothing. Okay, so now I want to zoom out and I want to talk about the big picture at large here. There are people groups in our culture who are competing for resources and things have gotten very, very skewed. In every single one of the ways that we can have a resource, in every single one of these, there is a small group of people who have way too much of it and then the rest of us that don't have nearly enough. So think about quiet. Most of us don't have nearly enough quiet. And then there's a small group of people that are just lonely, overloaded with quiet. The big one that we've talked about is money. There's a small group of people who are just overloaded with money and the rest of us just don't have enough. And the same thing goes with time. There's a small group of people who have more time than they know what to do with and the rest of us don't even know where those people are because we'd like to meet them. It has a way of separating us. Now, let's talk about money for a second. 1% of the country owns 40% of the wealth. You guys have heard these statistics before. 0.1% of the country owns as much as the bottom 90%. It has gotten so out of hand and the only way back to a healthy world is when these things start to come into balance. Uh, I was having this conversation with uh, somebody that I love very dearly not too long ago and this person had a business that had gone out of business and then this person had to go to work for a large retail distribution uh, company and this person was saying no but I chose to do that and was almost like taking up for the big company and I was saying but what other option did you have and see that's where we always get is we get in these places where like we don't have much of another option so we guess we'll just do what we have to do to survive could anyone with just a small amount of capital go open up a store and legitimately compete with Walmart? Not likely. The odds are so stacked against you and the odds are so stacked against us whenever we're competing with people that have so much more than us. Like we love the stories of the underdogs coming through. We love like the Rudy's of the world. But come on, Rudy's not going to make it in the NFL because we have gotten to be such a culture of experts and such a culture of haves and have-nots that the have-nots no longer can do the whole Cinderella story and come from so far behind in order to make it. It's just not even possible. And so when we get to that point, we have to seriously look at some other way of doing this so that the haves do not continue to dominate the have-nots. I have a couple of friends who just now bought a house and they were looking for a long time because they kept finding the house that they would want and four times they put in an offer for the home they thought they had it and then an investor would come in and make a cash offer and take the home right out from underneath them so somebody who didn't have as much 
tied up into the house in an emotional sense would just come along and just buy it out from underneath them. And it's a case of the haves that are overlooking the have-nots. We, the white culture in our country, do not understand how much we are the haves. We don't get it. And we don't understand what it's like to be the person who just is trying to make ends meet. Living in a culture where somebody else always gets to one-up you. Where somebody else always gets their way. And it's not that you want things to be unfair slighted towards you. You just understand that they don't get how much their advantage is taking advantage of you. This is black America and it has been for 200 years or more. This is the reality of people every day who don't happen to be white. There are so many ways that they are taken advantage of. And as much as this gets thrown out into like this is a police problem, in the broader sense, this ultimately boils down to this is an economic societal issue that has so many different angles on it. And it comes down to the fact that society has been skewed to favor white people and their thriving for so long because they have been the dominant culture. It's kind of like this. Uh, been shopping for home insurance lately. Well, we moved in here three years ago. And the home insurance company that we had three years ago has jacked our rates up a couple of times. And this time they just sent them up again, like 20% or something crazy like that. And I called them to have a conversation about it. And they're saying, well, it's because claims expenses has gone up and et cetera and et cetera and et cetera. And so you know how this works. You've dealt with big companies like this, mortgage companies, insurance companies, whatever. But that company is not going to absorb the costs. Whatever new costs come along, they're going to pass it along to someone else. And they can do that because they're really the ones that are in control. I know you said, well, it's a competition thing, okay? But none of the insurance executives at any major insurance company in the country are going to go without on purpose. They're always going to protect themselves first whenever things get scarce and then let the other people absorb it if that's the unfortunate reality. They would in theory like for me to not have to pay higher rates but when push comes to shove they're not going to absorb the cost. They're going to pass it along to me. And that's what happens over and over and over and over again in a society with scarcity. When we feel like we're going without, we pass along the cost to someone else. Classic example. If you've bought a house, you know what PMI is. You're buying insurance, not for yourself. You're buying insurance for the bank. You're essentially paying for the other customers who don't pay their own mortgages. When the bank lends money to someone else and probably shouldn't have lent them money but did anyways and that person failed to pay their mortgage and the bank had to take a hit, 
they're not going to absorb that cost. They figured out they'll just pass it along to everyone else. So you're paying insurance to the bank. Now, the the funny thing is, is if you have like over 20%, 22% of your mortgage paid off and you've got that much equity in your house, then you don't have to pay PMI. But who are the people who have over 20% in their house? They're people like me. They're people who have enough. And who are the people who need the extra $100, whatever it is, a month? Who are the people who need that the most? They're the very people who are having to pay it. So the cost of all kinds of things in this country keeps getting pushed downward and downward and downward to the lower end of society. Now we've got a whole segment of society. You say, well, they're receiving government assistance. Okay, well, that is true. That's the only way that so many people can get by. And so oftentimes the middle class feels like they're the, the only people who are paying for everyone. But my point in all of this is that this is how it has worked with white upon black. The people in power always get to choose who absorbs the cost. And for so long, we've made slightly selfish decisions when we've been in a position of power that has favored our own survival over others. When push comes to shove, we're going to survive first and we're going to let them worry about figuring it out for themselves. Has gotten us into a culture of great disparity. And so when you want to start talking about the disparity of people in prison like uh, the black population in our country 12% of the population about 50% of the the prison population I think those numbers may be a little off um, the uh, the white community often you know would come back and say something like well they're com they're the ones committing the crime but why are crimes committed see if we just stop there <laughs> then we're dead but if we'll start to ask the why questions, we'll start to uncover some of this stuff. Did, did you know that one of the ways that we figure out, I think I said this in the last podcast, one of the ways that we figure out prison population 10, 10 years from now is that we'll look at reading scores of third graders. It's very predictable. People who don't have much to do with their life are going to end up down a certain road. And so instead of, instead of doing the whole blame culture thing, let's take a look at this. The haves have taken advantage of the have-nots, and we've created a culture where it's very, very difficult to be a black male, a young black male, who is successful at doing something good in the world. And so it's no wonder that so many of them have ended up where they are today. And we're, instead of blaming them, how about we figure out better ways to integrate and to help people and to get people to a place where they feel like they matter in the world, where they're contributing something to the world. How about giving some of the benefit of the doubt? We are so, I mean, uh, I hear a lot of times, uh, well, we've elected a, a black president as if that means we've arrived at equality. Here's a statistic for you. All of the black people in our country combined, 40 million black people combined, own a total of 8 million acres of land. Every black person in the country combined owns less than five white people. If you take the top five white people, 
land ownership is so unbelievably skewed. And that's really a pretty good measure of who has what. And you can look at it in so many different ways. You could look at how many CEOs are black. You could look at how many and so on and so forth. But the point is, is that the people in power, when we only look at ourselves, end up taking advantage of people who aren't in power. And I would even go so far as to say it's not that the people who aren't in power want those who are to fall to their demise or that they want to take over them or anything like that. It's just that they want to be treated fairly as if they matter. I mean, what's this whole movement been called? It's been called Black Lives Matter. And yeah, all lives matter. But why would you even say that in the first place? Because apparently somebody doesn't seem to think that you do matter. Think about the black culture. Um, I am a, a Christian church kid, and I've been to a lot of black churches, and it's pretty widely known that in the black community, there are celebrities. There are uh, the big name black pastors and preachers in our country, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, people like that. And then even at a local level, if you go into a black church, there is more often than not the very pastor-centric model of church where the pastor is sort of like the main dude and nobody else really has much of a voice in the church. And the rest of the group works to support that one and to hold them up. And it's because that's their connection to power. That's their connection to somebody that matters. And, and I want you to think about how a flower works or a, a flowering plant. So think about a bean plant. If you're a gardener, we have this term called bolting. Whenever a plant goes without water or resources for a while, it finally, after it's used all of its creative options, it's gone through step number one, and it's leaned toward the sun, and it's grown its roots out, and it still can't find water. It'll start to turn in on itself. It'll go to step two. And some of the plant will actually voluntarily die so that one or two or three good flowers can come out and produce bean pods. It's not like all of the flowers die. It's like some of them sacrifice themselves so that the plant can have at least, if nothing else, one beautiful flower. And that's so much represented by what we have in a culture of celebrity like in the black church. And so uh, there are no real business leaders. There are no real community stars in most small black churches so they're they've got to have somebody that has some power in it and that's that's where the celebrity culture has come from interestingly though the black culture is gaining power in our country this is a very hopeful time for black americans it's really interesting whenever you whenever you hear people talk about how our country's going, even like you see it in the Republicans versus the Democrats, the Republicans, their mantra is make America great again. And the Republicans are largely what? White. See, for the first time in really the history of the country, white culture is actually losing power. And so you got 
white people, especially like the white middle class, I would argue that the very top of the, the 1%, they're gaining power, but for the rest of white America, they're losing power at an unprecedented rate. And so there are all of these like fingers that are being pointed because the black culture is actually gaining a little bit of power. Or maybe they're not losing power as rapidly as white America because they're actually making some gains. If you talk to uh, a lot of uh, black Americans now around you, you'll hear a hopefulness in them. They may may be so frustrated at all of the the news that's been going on with the shootings, and they may be so frustrated that this stuff keeps coming out. It may be like a wound. But underneath that, there's usually like a hope and an optimism that, hey, this isn't going to last forever. That, that like, hey, we're actually on the up and up a little bit. And so it, when you look at the Democratic side, they don't they don't seem to have like a whole lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot more hopefulness of where the country's going. Because ultimately it comes down to what we believe about our resources and what we have. And white America is really struggling. White middle class America is really struggling because we're having to go without things that our parents generation did not have to go without and let's not underestimate that that's a real struggle for people but let's also be pretty realistic the earth itself can't even support seven billion people to live using as much as we've used in white middle class America if the whole world lived like us this world would be like I mean ransacked and pillaged there wouldn't be anything left of it we can thank the people who have not used as many resources for the fact that we still have any fresh air and water and things like that because we have been spending it up now I hope that Ultimately, when we zoom out and we see the big picture of the wars that are taking place around us and we realize that it's a bunch of people bickering and fighting power struggles over ultimately what is an issue of scarcity, then we can do a couple of things. Number one, first and foremost, can we have some grace? Now, that doesn't ultimately like, or it doesn't initially make me feel like, oh yeah, I need to have grace on people because they're in a power struggle. But it's what humans do, and you can't fault humans for acting like humans. Like, if something is coming in on your family, you go into protection mode. Like, if there's some sort of threat, it could be a threat because you don't have enough, or it could be a threat because you're being attacked. You go to protect that which is near and dear to you. And that's behind all of the disparity between rich and poor, between black and white. Everyone's trying to protect themselves first. And I'm not saying it's the best way to live, but I am saying it's everyone's initial reaction. So can we just have some grace for the people who are trying to protect something that is not ours? So, secondly, I want to talk to Christians. You don't have to be, so if you're not, turn me off for just a minute. But Jesus is asking us to live in such a way that we believe that we have enough, even when the evidence doesn't suggest it. 
He said, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've already received it. If you break down the Sermon on the Mount, how much was he talking about this very issue? Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have enough worries of its own. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. You hear the echoes of Jesus saying, look, even if you're living in a culture of scarcity, even if you're living in a world where you don't have enough, and maybe even people are taking advantage of you, believe that you have what you need, and maybe God will take care of it. Believe that you have it. What would your life look like if you lived as if you had all the resources in the world? What would your household look like if you lived like you had all the time to give? Your kids needed something, and, and, and it's okay. You can, you can have some of my time because I've got plenty of time. What, what would change in your house if you lived that way? Or if somebody needed some sort of money, and if you just said, here, just, just take what I have. It's, this is fine. You can have it. There will be enough. Now, I, I know immediately, especially the, the math people, <laughs> will go and say, well, you can't live that way all the time because then you're going to drive yourself further and further into scarcity, and then you're compounding the problem, and so on and so forth. And listen, I hate to be non-scientific because the scientist in me <laughs> really, really, really uh, gets annoyed by this sometimes. But let's be honest, Jesus wasn't an accounting major. Jesus said, just give it and just see. Just let go of it and find out. This takes us back to the daily decisions that we're making because no single one of us is going to solve the culture war. This comes down to 320 million people living as if they have enough in a world where we have less than we've ever had. We've got to start living as if we have more time, more love, more energy than we know what to do with. When we start living that way, now, a lot of you would say, well, um, if, if I just pretended like I had like all the money in the world, I'm going to go broke really quickly. But, you know, a lot of times it doesn't work that way. Because often the people who spend the least are the people who have the most. A lot of times, the people who are extremely wealthy live very simply. And they're even able to live more simply than people like me. Because I'm like spending money on a disability policy because I just know like, oh man, I can't. I can't screw this up. Like if I were to have some major disease or something like that, that's it. I've got nothing left. I'm, I'm worried about my family being taken care of. And somebody who has more doesn't have to do little things like that all around them. And so I wonder if we lived in a way that we pretended like we had so much more if we wouldn't actually spend less. And then what if failure weren't such a big deal. See, one of the things about scarcity is that we really convince ourselves, like the disability policy, that we can't fail. That like we can't mess it up. Like this is going to be the last straw. Like if I give away one more of these or if I have one more incident happen or one more whatever goes wrong, that's it. 
that's it I'm done that's all it is we create a culture where failure is completely frowned upon where failure is like the worst evil in the world because if failure happens then dot 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 our greatest worries but all of history has been built on the backs of failure people trying things out and they fail so that they can try something else that actually works this is how actually fundamentally how science works as you try things and then they fail and so then you know that that doesn't provide the answer and so there are so many ways that this is ingrained in our heads and I have to confess that even in my own house we've created a culture in here where you have to do things right and you have to do them the right way because we've been pretty much running on fumes for a lot of the last few years and that's gotten better but we're not to a place yet where we celebrate failure and I want to be there I want to be I saw an article today that was so good it was talking about this child who is I believe come to be a, a multimillionaire billionaire who at the dinner table growing up would have her dad ask who failed at something this week and would almost get mad if they didn't provide an answer and then whenever they said I tried this and failed at it then he would be like yeah give them a high five and they would celebrate their failures because it's only our failures that are going to make us better but if we're living in a culture of scarcity with a mindset of scarcity we're so afraid to fail and we're actually limiting ourselves from making the world a better place so I want to challenge you in the face of whatever lacking you feel this week that believe that you have enough you know whenever we went to Haiti one of the funny things was as you would meet these little poor kids out in the country and I'm thinking they're probably the bottom point one percent the poorest of the poorest of the poor in the world I mean you got eight people living in a straw and mud hut with absolutely nothing and, and I'm thinking these kids that were raised up there so many of them are so capable of having so much joy because scarcity at its root is a comparative disease it's all about comparing who we are to the people around us it's all about looking at our own lives and so much of it is just a head game if you were raised up that little kid down there he didn't know he was poor if he met some people like us he may think wow they're wealthy but ultimately scarcity is solved when we have some sort of power over our lives to make something meaningful happen and yes that country is largely a mess because of all kinds of uh, international things that have happened on a grand scale but there are even some people who are g just grabbing on to these little nuggets who have next to nothing who are actually coming to do great things because they're believing great things I don't know how all of this works itself out but I do know what Jesus is asking me to do 
don't worry about my life, what I will eat or drink, or about my body, what I will wear. Is not life more than food in the body more than clothes look at the birds around you in the air they don't sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them are you not much more valuable than they could any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life that's the kind of mindset heart and lifestyle that I know I'm being called to live and every single one of us are going to have to step up and ask what does it mean for me to live in a culture where we're having to share more and more and how have I been selfish how can I let go of more of the grip that I've had on my life how can I let go if I'm a person in power I just pray that people in power all across this country, not because they were taxed out of it, not that they donated all their money to a charitable nonprofit organization, but they would just be generous and just let go of their grip on their control and their power and their place in society. The the 1%, the 0.01%, that those people and that so many of the people who have so much in our society even if it's time or energy that they would let go of it and that God would shine light on all the ways that I can let go of whatever it is in my life that I'm hoarding it all starts with every single one of us it starts with me and it starts with you and that's my prayer for us today essentially that we would be more generous people and in being more generous people that we would believe that we have so much and in believing that we have so much that we wouldn't have to fight and bicker and argue about who does and does not have enough and that we would treat the people around us with kindness, dignity, love and respect because we have more than enough energy to go around and that we would start to undo all of the ways that we have bound up brothers and sisters in chains and all of the ways that we have marginalized and put aside classes and entire people groups that we could come together and be one and not be a threat on each other because the other group has power because there's more than enough power to go around for all of us because God has made this world a good, good place. I pray that we would believe that, and I pray that the warring that's going on between the white people and the black people and every other color of people in our country would come to an end because we believe that there's enough of the earth and enough love to share among us all and that people would become empowered and that they would feel empowered even if they're among the most powerless and I pray that in the areas of my life where I'm not powerful where I'm the most powerless that I will believe that I have enough that I would believe that I've been provided for, that I would believe that I've been taken care of, and that I do have enough to share because I have one creator who does not live in a culture of scarcity. And he's more than willing to share it with us all. Hey, thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got something out of it. And we'll be back with the Queen in a couple of weeks. Much love to you all.